Charlie Stevens, your host, and this is Primetime VC, bringing together the best in venture capital to compete around the hottest topics in tech. Before we get started, huge thank you to TechCrunch for featuring us in their most recent article. Also, thank you to everyone who subscribed to our YouTube page. If you haven't done that, get on the bus, Gus, and subscribe. Now let's meet our top venture capitalists. Hadley Harris, ENIAC Ventures. Hi, I'm Hadley from ENIAC Ventures. I'm like Tom from The Godfather. The founder is always the Don. I'm the consigliere. Could be okay with that as long as I'm not Fredo. Kate Brodock, W Fund. Hey, I'm Kate Brodock, founding partner of the W Fund. I am the scrappy one in the VC industry. Love the scrappiness. You're going to need it today. Elliot Robinson, Bessemer Venture Partners. Hi, I'm Elliot. On Twitter, they call me the Values VC. I happen to be from the DMV, so it's hail to the Washington football team. And a special shout out to two of my closest friends who happen to be Udell Blueham. I hope you can live up to that name and bring the value today. Lastly, Chris Duvos, Ahoy Capital. What's up, guys? It's great to be with you all. I'm so happy to have a platform to say some, speak my mind and say some things because I put the pro in inappropriate. Oh, keep it classy, Chris. This is prime time. All right, here's how the show works. We're going to talk about the latest news in funding, innovation, and technology, and our VC panelists are going to give their take. We're going to give them points based on style, stats, and facts. The top two VCs with the most points move on to the finals and go head-to-head in the money round. Winner takes all, including the platform to promote whatever they choose. Now let's get into the most electric show in business entertainment. It's Primetime VC, the show of accredited banter. Primetime VC is supported by First Republic Bank, banking built for innovators. E2 Generations, we solve problems that live on Excel. Brex, scale your business faster with Brex. Cash management and corporate cards your team in 10 minutes or less. Use our link in the show description to sign up today. First in. AI startups received over a billion in the past couple weeks, propelled by four mega rounds. If we look globally, AI startups raised over 7.2 billion in the second quarter of 2020 in over 43 countries. What AI companies do you think will make the biggest impact in the near future? Elliot, start us off. So first off, uh, it's hard to believe that any enterprise software company, maybe even consumer company, isn't an AI company today. There was a funny time where the strategy was raise your Series A, whatever company.com, and then change it for your Series B.ai, and that would help raise your valuation. So for me, the most exciting AI company that I've seen uh, is a company called Hyperscience, actually out of New York City. Uh, They recently raised a Series C in March of this year, announced in June. And what they're really going after is the enterprise automation space with a new category they've defined called software-defined management. I like that. I like that. That's good stuff. Kate, what about you? Yeah, um, I get super excited about when companies use AI for kind of regular people. You know, picking out a shoe, the perfect shoe for me, eh. But when you can provide access to some people who don't normally have access to stuff, I get super excited. So whether it's credit for underserved um, populations like Mocha Phi, whether it's Womb, who's kind of like data science for women's health, 
That's what super excites me. We like you being excited. We're going to keep that excitement going. Hadley? I think the most exciting companies uh, haven't been started yet or will be started in the next couple of years. And probably the most exciting area for me is ones that are utilizing cutting edge NLU. If you look at the progression of natural language understanding over the last five years and even the last two years, it's uh, accelerating at a very high rate. We've come to the point where uh, founders don't need to be a PhD uh, in NLU to utilize these things. There's a lot of open source available tool sets that they can make, that they can use to build tools and products that exceed anything we've seen before. So I'm really excited for this next five years. That's great. Chris, what about yourself? So the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing us that he didn't exist, said Kaiser Sose in the movie, The Usual Suspect. And I gotta tell you, Everybody's ignoring the gorilla in the room, which is Skynet, which has been operational since 1997 and is controlling our lives in ways you can't even imagine. Now, but kidding aside, uh, one of my favorite companies is a company called Primer, which is kind of on the same, uh, same topic. We got a small investment in it. And these guys basically build machines that can read and write. So what they're doing is, you know, they're kind of leveraging the, the you know, all of the advances in, in kind of petabyte scale processing that they've developed. And, uh, and they're basically, um, you know, kind of trying to solve this gap that's kind of started, which is the, the amount of data is exploding and just exponentially. And the ability of people to kind of read the data and keep up with the data is, uh, is lagging. And so Primer is working in, you know, a bunch of high throughput um, uh, uh, environments like, um, like the intelligence community and in retail and, and others to, to make, you know, kind of actionable, uh, relevant reports that are as good as those that would be written by a human analyst. I wish I had had that in high school. Yeah, I don't share your excitement with Skynet. I'm going to say that is not an exciting company for me. We've witnessed a drastic pivot in the venture capital industry toward a more conservative result-based mindset. As VCs are going back to basics to make sure founders have sound unit economics, what are the most important questions you ask founders when considering an investment? Kate, start us off. Yeah, so in the context of kind of COVID world, um, my biggest thing, there's a school of thought, you know, out there saying, oh, just, you know, paint the story, don't talk about COVID. I think it's the most important thing you can do. So you better have a rock solid COVID story. And I also want to hear what happens after it's done and when things are back to quote normal, um, especially for the companies who did massive surges in COVID. It might look like really hot heels. So other than that, again, straight back down to business basics is the most important thing. Chris. Boom. So I'm looking for people who are robust nonconformists with the courage of their convictions. So I spent a lot of time asking questions like, where do you most violently disagree with the conventional wisdom in your space and why? You know, then I'm looking for people who kind of have uh, a reflective and inquisitive sense. So I ask questions like, tell me about a hypothesis that you're currently testing or what hypothesis have you recently discarded and why? And then, you know, I'm always like curious about the, you know, the kind of confident humility, um, you know, people who can debate, mix it up, what have you. And I always ask like, tell me about a debate that your team's having that's kind of simmering that, you know, never quite resolves itself. And, uh, and then another one is like, tell me how your co-founders make you better. Um, and how you make them better in turn. You know, understanding that interplay and how every great, every great team is a well-rounded whole that's made up of jagged pieces that fit together. Mm, jagged pieces fitting together, I like that. It's like this group right here. I mean, the debate is real. Hadley, how about yourself? Uh, I was gonna go something like Chris's around, you know, what are these points of view that you have that are really unique and run against the industry, but uh, let's try something new. 
Uh, let's talk about pricing. I'm a very early stage investor. Uh, it's not something that, that seed stage investors generally talk about. It's not important kind of uh, what they end up doing for pricing. It's important how they're thinking about it. It will absolutely change. It always changes every single company I've ever been part of. Uh, the pricing changes drastically over that last five years. But understanding how they're thinking about their business model even before they get to market, even before they have those first customers uh, is, is crucially important in just kind of getting into their heads and how they're thinking about their business. Elliot, what kind of questions are you asking? Yeah, for sure. So I ask the same three questions of every entrepreneur that I meet with. One is, why are you waking up every day and doing this? Because most entrepreneurs don't sleep. I really want to understand, like, what's your passion? Why are you doing this? Two is how you define success in a 10-year perspective. As we all know, a lot of these things go up, down, left, right. It takes you a long time to get there. If an entrepreneur tells me, hey, I'm only looking this to do this for three to five years, that's usually a sign for me. And then three, I always ask them about what are their core values and which ones do they use to help uh, kind of manage their business. Because for me, that's the gap between why do you do this do you have a 10-year view? And then how do you navigate all the ups and downs in between? However, I think your question had something to do with metrics. So I'm the growth investor, I think, here on the panel. So I spend a lot more time in Excel than most of the folks uh, that we're talking to today. And I would say that um, you know, as you go from your Series B, C, and beyond to, to hopefully becoming an IPO company, things like gross margin payback, which ties all your operating things together, it really does matter what values you run by because you can start to do weird things with pricing, how you renew customers, how you roll out updates. So, you know, of course, Excel is what it is. We all know that the Excel is wrong. And I really do think it is the values and how you reverse engineer yourself into success on the long view that matters. Maybe just to uh, build a little bit on what Elliot said, absolutely at the later stages, gross margins, think about that is super important. Uh, biggest mistake I've ever made is not thinking about that also at the very early stages when we invest around seed. What are those gross margins going to look like at scale? Uh, you know, you can have a company that can be very successful in terms of kind of top line growth, but if they don't have those margins, it really doesn't matter. You're not going to be able to build a, a multi-fund returner. So even thinking about that very early, even before that first customer, at least understand how they're thinking about that problem. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Having good flow here. Kate, you had something to say? Yeah. One last thing that I think is just a really evergreen thing to look at and in my experience has been make or break is right back to that founder but pretty specifically on are you the type of founder who has the ability to drink from a fire hose because you're going to be in a hell of a lot of positions where you're drinking from a fire hose and have a really good system in place that is not just yourself to be able to filter through and get yourself moving forward and has a little bit of humility and coachability to them and has, and is able to reach outside of their own person and ask for advice and help them forward. Because drinking from a fire hose, if you don't have a good process in place, will absolutely make or break what you're doing. And maybe rip your lips off. <laughs> yep, yep. Never a good thing. Yeah, you're going to need those lips to communicate your process, but I like that. Okay. Limited partners, historically the money behind the money, have always invested in venture capital funds. We then invest into startups, but the lines continue to blur as more and more LPs and VCs assume similar roles. What do you think VCs of the future will look like? Chris, start us off. Sure. So, you know, I play a lot of Xbox with my son and sometimes without my son. And so I've been uh, attuned to this new phrase, like what we used to call noobs are today called bots. So if some players out there just like, you know, kind of looking lost and whatever, and you can like, you know, kind of take care of them, they're a bot. 
And, you know, I was thinking about that. Most VCs today are bots, right? And, you know, one of the things that, you know, I, I always think about is the innovators are followed by the imitators who are followed by the idiots. And we've clearly reached the idiot phase in venture capital because there are just too many people starting too many funds and it's madness. So what does the future look like? I think there's going to be like, there's still the barriers to starting a fund are continuing to come down. So there are going to be a lot of people coming in and everybody's going to be fighting for, you know, differentiation. But the word differentiation is a funny word because some things are differentiated in how much they suck. Um, and that's something I think about all the time. But in terms of kind of practical, you know, kind of what does the future look like? Look, um, back to this point about bots, right? Like, I think the future is going to be very al algorithmically driven. I think there are going to be a lot of people who, um, you know, who are going to kind of throw up their hands and, you know, we're starting to see some of it, uh, you know, already. And I think the the use of data is going to be become, um, you know, much more uh, robust and rigorous uh, going forward. But look, I'm on team human. I believe that drum machines have no soul. So I believe that, uh, you know, live investors will continue to be, you know, important in, uh, in kind of making decisions and pulling triggers. And so I love the, 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 um, you know, uh, the style kind of pioneered by my friend, Josh Koppelman. He and I used to sit at the Conchahawk and Marriott in like 2000. Chris, you're going, you're going and going. I, I appreciate that, but I'm moving on. Hadley, take over. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you look back kind of at the history of venture, it tends to be pretty cyclical. Uh, I think uh, to Chris's point, there's just too many venture funds uh, and they're getting more and more every day as that barrier to entry lowers. A lot of people are going to lose money in the next 10 years with a lot of those funds and there's going to be a pullback and we're going to see this kind of cyclical nature over time. If you look at the current progression, you have multi-stage funds getting bigger and bigger and everyone says, well, are there just going to be 10 big multi-stage funds? It's tough for me to see a world where they're able to address the very early founders. How can they incentivize partners to work on those small rounds, those small investments, uh, and get paid the same as the folks that are leading $100 million rounds? I, I just don't see that working out unless they're more junior people and they're not the type of folks that founders are gonna work with. So I think there's always gonna be an opportunity for smaller funds early on, even if there are kind of mega funds that, that handle most of the stack. Elliot, your thoughts? Yeah, what I love about going last in most of your questions is I'm actually going to try to answer your question. <laughs> I think it was about the LP's role uh, as a venture capitalist. Look, if you take a step back, the reality is most venture capitalists kind of suck at this venture capital thing just by looking at the numbers. Um, so, you know, I, you can't really be upset with a bunch of LPs that are making bets. And there is some, some thought that, you know, because they've invested in so many top tier GPs, or at least what they perceive to be top tier GPs, they have a unique view into different segments, trends, and the companies that are competing with each other. So if I think about SVB Capital or GIC, who I've done a lot of co-invest with from an LP perspective, I think it's great. And most of the big funds and GPs are also investing in smaller funds to see deal flow and trends too. So I think we're all just trying to figure it out. And as long as we keep trying to figure it out, fund cycle over fund cycle, it all work out. Kate, you're actually going last here. You want to round it out? Yeah. So I'm going to hit this in two ways and two things I'm excited about. Um, one shift forward has been uh, VCs starting to invest actually in emerging funds. I'm obviously biased. We're an emerging fund, but it's really interesting from a risk perspective. And then additionally, from a really cool deal flow perspective. So um, being able to tap into a lot of emerging funds who have really good relationships with founders and in many of them who have access to completely new pipelines, that's cool. And I think a smart move for many traditional VCs. Uh, the second thing in the reverse is um, new LPs coming in is, you know, we're talking to a small community bank out of Wisconsin 
they're just getting excited about uh, expanding their portfolio, trying to diversify them. They're really excited about getting a little closer to the deals and getting into the nitty gritty and actually being a little bit more of, a, of an active LP instead of just sitting, sitting back and kind of waiting for your quarterly statement. So I'm excited from the, for some of the new, highly engaged LPs coming in. That's great. Any other? I'd like to disagree with just part of uh, what Kate said in terms of large funds investing in, in, uh, in newer kind of early stage funds. I understand why it's, an, it's a good thing for the larger fund. It's not always a good thing for the smaller kind of emerging fund. Uh, part of, especially if you're a seed fund, one of the, your main jobs is raising a series A from the best fund possible for that team. And if you're captive to a light speed or one of these funds that's doing a lot of investments in seed funds, you're going to be biased in that. And I really think it's important that you kind of put your entrepreneurs first and you connect them and, and get them to raise some of the best funds for them, not just for, for your relationship. Yeah, fair. But part of that is the original uh, relationship that you have set up, which is I'll reject an LP in a second if I don't think that they're going to be a good partner. So uh, that's just sticking to your guns. I hear you. But, but who's the best uh, investor for each company differs. So it, it's tough to do that across a whole portfolio. But and then there's one of the challenges with VC innovation is that people are off going, you know, doing all kinds of stuff without really thinking about it. And I'm not an accountant, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. And the, uh, <laughs> you know, people talk about things like ECI, like I don't think half the venture investors who invest in smaller funds know what ECI is. But for some LPs, especially overseas LPs, it's actually kind of a big pain in the butt and creates all kinds of reporting requirements so there's a lot of stuff that's like quote unquote being innovated where like we're just like you know kind of dropping a bunch of landmines for uh for kind of future uh people to tread Great on stuff let's move on to the buy or sell segment we are out of round one buy or sell this is buy or sell where our top vcs pick a side either you love it and you buy it or you hate it and sell it sell it fast First round capital founder Josh Kopelman recently said he isn't fully sold on SPACs, but thinks rolling funds could prove powerful. With AngelList helping rolling funds become the new craze, buy or sell rolling funds will disrupt venture capital. Hadley. Uh, I'm buying. I, I think it could be a powerful weapon for the very small kind of single GP funds to get off the ground quickly. Uh, I don't think that it's going to uh, disrupt kind of larger funds and kind of move into the later stages. Uh, but I think in general, for founders having more money, uh, folks that can be really helpful, former entrepreneurs that can be really helpful on the ground, who can get up and running very quickly and not go through all the rigmarole of setting up a fund and LPs and that whole fundraising timeline, I think is really powerful. Mm -hmm. Kate? Yeah, well, you're talking the fund on a rolling fund. So uh, I'm actually going to sell only because of the word disrupt. So rolling funds have been around for, you know, decades. It's not anything new. AngelList is really awesome at packaging, packaging these things together. And AngelList, I love you. We're super happy. Um, I do think that it does provide a gateway for some people to come in. Um, but I see it almost sitting in the middle of kind of really big VC uh, funds, the really big, you know, the really big space out there. Um, and I don't know if it's going to take the whole thing over a little bit to what Hadley just said, or I'm sorry, Chris just said, um, it's, it's, it's not going to take anything over. It's a new tool. It's a pathway in. I don't think it's going to fully disrupt. Okay. Let's move over to Chris. You know, I'm a huge seller with all due respect to my friend, Josh. 
I think, uh, I, like I said, the innovators are followed by the imitators who are followed by the idiots. Anybody who wanted to raise a venture capital fund over the last, like, you know, five years probably could have raised one relatively easily until COVID hit. Um, the interest alignment from the LP perspective is horrible. Um, you've got uh, accelerated fees, so you're digging a huge J curve. You've got, uh, you know, kind of carry that only nets over two years, which makes absolutely no sense. You know, from an interest alignment perspective, it's a disaster. And at some point, you know, people need to get back to like starting companies, right? Instead of focusing like, why is everybody a dilettante at everything? Like, let's get back, like, you know, somebody once said, if things continue in the healthcare industry in the United States, in 2050, everybody's going to be lying in a bed taking care of the person next to them. Well, it's the same thing in venture. Like, it feels like in San Francisco in 2050, everybody's going to be investing in everybody's companies. It's going to be a big circular reference. Okay. Elliot, your thoughts on rolling funds? Yeah, I'm selling as well. Um, this actually reminds me of when I was in business school over a decade ago. And at this time, everyone decided, I don't want to be a banker. I want to be a consultant. And one of my professors said, well, if 95% of you want to be consultants and no one starts a company or wants to be like an executive, there will be no businesses left to consult. And I feel like this is the same weird thing happening in tech where for some weird reason, everyone wants to be a venture capitalist. I don't really get it. Um, the old school venture, which I absolutely love, you know, back in 2006 when I started my career, it really was about helping the companies and helping them think long term. And now it's about how easily can I access new capital on a quarterly basis, thinking about a new batch of companies. You've already forgot about the things that you did 90 days ago. I just don't get it. Everything that I'm invested in, every management team, every board that I sit on, I'm thinking five, seven, 10 years, if I'm lucky, 10 years, because that means they've really done something big and taken a big piece of uh, new market share. One of the big things that I've seen on this is it's going to highly depend on how new VCs use this. We structured our, our rolling fund on a 16 quarter to try to mimic, mimic a 10 year fund with a four year investment period. You've got some VCs coming in and it's like a glorified quarterly SPV, yeah. you know, and at that point, the LPs, it's also not a diversified portfolio if you're coming in for a quarter. So it's like so much has to be shaken out too. Um, and it's really it, a lot of it's going to depend on how it's being used. Kate, I love that perspective. That's great. Absolutely. Let's move on. The world is becoming more polarizing with brands, celebrities, and thought leaders feeling the pressure to have an opinion on nearly every topic facing humanity. With startups and tech playing such a major role in our lives, buy or sell, VCs now have the responsibility to weigh in on political and social issues. Kate, you want to take this one? Yeah, so um, look, no one has the responsibility to do anything. I think this is a PR move. And so you can sit back and you cannot make um, any stance. You're probably going to start getting asked from your founders. It's probably going to start mattering. And if you don't have an opinion, that will probably start to affect some of the decisions that are made with founders who are starting to have a lot more power in some of these deals and they have a lot more choices now to go to certain places so responsibility sell pr might want to think about okay elliot your thoughts i have the same view i mean I, i'm selling that you have to do something um no shocker here from the video feed i'm black and i'm a venture capitalist <laughs> there's not a whole lot of me and at the partner level i think there's actually less than five of me that can cut a check more than 10 million dollars in this country so you know, that's just a stark reality. So, of course, I speak up on these issues. I have been well before kind of the current conversation of 2020. And if, um, 
you know, backed a bunch of diverse founders, even, you know, in my role here at Bessemer. So my viewpoint is do the work, let other people talk about the work that you're doing. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense for you to, to use it as a press release thing because it will always go bad. Yeah, absolutely. Chris. You know, I always say venture has more units of ego per dollar of return than any other asset class. And the last thing I want to hear are a bunch of like VCs using hashtag activism where the actions don't, you know, kind of follow their, um, you know, they're weighing in on different topics. I, I you know, People can keep their opinions to themselves, but go out and do some good in the world. That's that's the most important thing. Actions, not words. Absolutely. Hadley, what do you think? Yeah, I, I'm selling as well. I mean, at ENIAC, I think we've put as much time and effort, at least per pound, as anyone, in, especially in the last six months, into underrepresented founders. That's something we feel passionate about, but it's it's up to the individual. Uh, I don't think feel, people should feel obligated. They should do what they're passionate about and try and drive change. Uh, but, but I don't think it should be necessarily expected if folks aren't passionate about that, that topic. Let's move on to the last question. Founder of 20 Minute VC podcast, Harry Stebbings tweeted, the best CMO you will ever have is your CEO. Welcome to the generation of personal brands. Buy or sell the importance of founders needing to focus on building a personal brand to help grow their startup. Chris, start us off. Oh gosh, I love Harry, but that might be the most millennial thing I've ever heard in my life. It's like, well, you know, we're just like, you know, kind of celebrating the individual, but I'm an old school guy. I believe if you build a better mousetrap, the world will beat a, a path to your door. So I want founders who are heads down, crushing it, building a great product, and that product will sell itself. Now, I know that it's a noisy market out there, but, uh, but, uh, but a lot of people get distracted in this, like, you know, kind of star effing, uh, you know, kind of Hollywoodification of venture capitalism, killing me dead. Big sell. So that's a good take right there. Hadley, what do you think? Yeah, and I'm a big sell as well. I think the best founders are just maniacally focused on their product and building their business, not concerned with their kind of personal brand. Uh, you know, I can I have seen it be effective in some places, but I think as a whole, focus on your company, crush, and uh, and that's it. You know, don't need to work it, worry about your, your personal brand. If you want to do that afterwards with your billions of dollars, that, that's great. Elliot, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I couldn't sell this any harder. I think the only thing I would sell harder is a startup promoting, you know, closed door hugging as a group or something. I, I, this is just the worst idea I've seen. My view is that your best CMO, your best marketing asset is not just your product, but it's your user community. Let them talk about how great your product is and how great your customer success and customer experience team is. You know, the last CEO I backed was a guy named Peter Brodsky. He has no Twitter. Someone else manages his LinkedIn. But when you talk to his users and his customer advisory board about him and his product team, I mean, that's really what you need. The last thing I'll say on this, even with the venture capitalists here at Bessemer and those that I mentor, I always tell them, find the right balance between your brand and your reputation. Your brand is just the bullshit that you're gonna tell people about yourself. Your reputation is what founders and other investors say about you, and that's all that matters. Strong. Kate. Yeah, sell, 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 100%. Um, I want you focused on business. Uh, I don't want you, you know, sitting on Twitter, uh, going to a, every speaking event every single you know week to the extent that your brand is able to help your company i support that a little bit but my gosh if you've got someone else who wants to go and talk about uh their brand sometimes i wonder if people who sit on twitter like do anything during the day it's like remarkable to me so that i i am for all of this these reasons uh i'm a big sell 
I'm a big sell yeah. on that. Twitter is only for VCs, not founders. That's what I'm... Tell the... Big place. Any, any, any yeah, well, tell the founders that. <laughs> yeah, right. Any last uh, comments before we move into the money round? Nothing. All right. All right. We got the points here. We got, um, I got a couple extra points to throw around. I don't know. A compliment to me would be good or whatever it is. It's fine. <laughs> Charlie, you look That's great. It, it get, I love that tie. Little too late, Hadley. Just like, <laughs> just like your partner in the hall last time. Compliments only get you so far, but they don't get you into the money round. Is that like a minus point? Is that a minus point for him? Uh, I think he's that's already out. He's already out, but... Uh, I don't think it matters, yeah. But so are you, Kate. I apologize. You're gone. Uh, money round comes down to Chris and Elliot. Congratulations, guys. You are in the money round. A little excitement, Elliot. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I'm Toso. I'm up against the brains of the operation. I'm like the dumbest guy on the screen, but hey... The Money Round. Folks, welcome to the finals. The world famous Money Round. Three questions, our competitors go head to head, winner takes all. Let's go. Famed investor Chamath Palihapitiya, CEO and founder of Social Capital, also the owner of the Golden State Warriors, shared his thoughts on Investing 101. An easy test to figure out which public companies you may want to invest in Check your phone, look at the settings for the screen time and activity for the week. When considering to invest in a company, how important is it to you that you're an avid user of the product or service prior to writing that check? Let's start off with Chris here. Look, I grew up as a value investor and when I was back at, uh, at Old Ivy's Endowment, you know, everything we looked at was through a, a, a value lens. Um, you know, and one thing I always think about is a, f a friend of mine once said to me, he said, look, fall in love with companies, but just remember that stocks are pieces of paper that re represent a residual claim on the net assets of that, uh, of that firm. So I'm always about like, look, you know, Buffett's rule is opportunity equals value minus perception. And by the time something's on my phone, because I'm like not really an early adopter, somebody who lives in Palo Alto, I'm not that early an adopter. By the time I, something gets on my phone, um, you know, we've already like gone through the hype cycle and are like kind of trending down. So, you know, I'm at that point, like the, the valuation will be like, you know, at, at its kind of probably highest point. And so for me, by the time something, by the time I love something, I might love the company, but, but the stock might be pretty fully valued and not be a great investment. All right. Elliot, what do you think? Yeah, sure. I, that's not a practice I've ever employed when I've thought about investing privately or publicly. I get it, though. I know what he's saying. If I think about the most recent IPOs, uh, Snowflake, JFrog, SumoLogic, none of those are going to be in my browser or my phone. Big believers in the product, the segment, the trend, and really those founders. Um, so I, I just, I'm a roadmap investor, man. I guess I kick it old school. Just think about where the markets are going 10 years from now, and, and those, that's where I place my bets. Okay, okay. Chamath Palihapitiya will like this question. We're going to send it to him. We're going to give the point to Elliot. Let's move on to the second question. Virtual Kitchen, founded by ex-Uber execs, raised $20 million led by Peter Thiel's founder fund. The company provides tech for commercial kitchens that want to optimize for delivery. Their old boss, ex-Uber CEO Travis Kalanick, founded Cloud Kitchens with the same business model and $400 million in the bank. Which company do you think has a better outcome? Elliot, start us off. Yeah, so I'm going to answer that two ways. So better outcome, I'm going to start with the food itself. I hate these companies. 
Uh, it has totally dramatically uh, taken away the value of the food that shows up at my house because I'm now ordering from Lolinda, my favorite restaurant here in San Francisco, but some Yahoo in a cloud kitchen is actually making the food that I'm used to getting, and it looks totally different. So I'm short on the idea as a consumer of food. Uh, however, I'm always a believer in the company with less money being more agile, scrappy, and more efficient as they grow. Chris, what do you think? Totally with you on the on the quality of the food stuff. That is uh, that is the certainty, and that's what you know. Part of what stresses me out for both these companies is you got to make a better product, and you know the unit economics might work a little bit better, but boy, people really don't love it. And as a restaurant, I'm putting my name on that. I'm I'm probably not thrilled about it. Um, you know what I always think is about is capital is corrosive, and yeah, we live in an era of weaponized balance sheets, and everybody's got you know kind of these immense war chests. But boy, if I I think if you have four hundred million dollars in the bank. Um, there's going to be a lot of like inefficient spending. And so I think, you know, people who are leaner, who have a little bit of sense of capital scarcity, who know how to be a little bit scrappy, um, you know, over time, those guys probably will have an advantage over guys that have a weaponized balance sheet. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do appreciate the use of Yahoo by Elliot. That was a phenomenal way to slide that in there. Some Yahoo cooking my food, but I'm going to give the point to Chris. Startup world is the epicenter for silly company names. This is changing as founders are not stressing over the dot-com domain. What's the wildest startup name you've come across? Uh, let's start off with Chris. Oh man, so when I started my LP career uh, back at Old Ivy in the early 2000s, we had a portfolio company called Gesundheit.com. Um, and it was basically a, an e-commerce company for uh, allergy sufferers. Now, first of all, I don't even know how to spell Gesundheit, but it was actually spelled wrong. The company was G-A-Z-O-O-N-T-I-T-E. So not only do you have to know that that means bless you in German or whatever it means, but then you got to spell it wrong to get to the website. What a disaster. And needless to say, that thing was a bagel. <laughs> it's good. Elliot, what do you think? My favorite startup name I've come across was there was this whole thing about the sharing economy years back. And then this weird company popped up called Fat Llama. And I didn't understand why would you ever name a company Fat Llama, but it was a company that allowed you to rent your neighbor's stuff. So I don't know how that company's doing. I'm assuming it's either kept the name or had to pivot and change the name, but Fat Llama still is at the top of my list. Fat Llama is good, Kazinta is good. I personally like Monkey Knife Fight, which was in the news recently. Monkey Knife Fight, if you said that, you were automatically going to win, but we're going to go with Fat Llama. Elliot, you're the winner of Primetime VC, episode three. Congratulations. Uh, so let's give him a little bit of a round of applause. Confetti's going to blast up, and you have our platform to talk about whatever you want. Go ahead. The final word. All right, cool. So I'm going to use this time and get my Woody from... Uh from around the horn on, I want to talk about diversity theater, something that I've written about and, and talked about for a long time. We're living through a really interesting time here in the country, particularly in tech and venture capital. What I really hope doesn't happen is that we, you know, over cohort, over advise, you know, give fake titles to a bunch of uh, black and brown founders, venture capitalists, LPs. Let's just do it the right way. I will say one last thing on diversity theater. The other side of it, something I call the pretzel rule. If you're sitting at your fund right now or your LP and you're pretzeling yourself in order to invest in people that don't look like the people that you usually do, you're doing something wrong. Treat them equitably in your main fund. Don't set up a side fund or a separate line. Just do it the same way that you would do it for everyone else. No more diversity theater. That's my takeaway. 
Thanks for watching Primetime VC, your go-to source for accredited banter, bringing together the best in venture capital to compete around the hottest topics in technology. If you think you can compete with the best, reach out to us at Primetime VC on Twitter, follow us on YouTube, subscribe to that page. If you haven't done that yet, what are you doing? I don't even know what you're doing with your life right now. Reach out, we'll put you on. If you got someone you want to nominate, tag them in this clip. Do whatever you got to do. We'll see you next week. We appreciate you watching. Thanks.